Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. This podcast is sponsored by our friends over at Paleo Valley, and I want to tell you about their amazing Super Greens, organic Super Greens powder. And the reason why I love Super Greens is because of the chlorophyll content. Most people don't know a whole lot about chlorophyll, but but it's what gives plants their green color. And it actually takes biophotons from the sun and turns them into energy within the plant. Chlorophyll is amazing for our blood purification, detoxification, and mitochondrial health. When we consume chlorophyll, it helps our mitochondria produce energy more effectively. It helps our blood flow and blood pressure uh, function more optimally and helps oxygenate the deep tissues of our body. So it's really powerful. The problem is it's hard to eat enough plant foods to get enough chlorophyll. And a lot of people really struggle. Their digestive systems really struggle to break down a lot of the plant fibers. So one of the best ways to get a clinical dose of chlorophyll is through a super greens powder. And that's why I love the organic super greens because it's all organic. And on top of that, there's no added sugars in it. They also have a whole bunch of other uh, digestive supportive superfoods. They've got digestive enzymes, ginger, lemon, beet, a whole bunch of different superfoods that support digestion and have and are rich in polyphenols that help bring down inflammation in the body and support the microbiome. And it doesn't contain any cereal grasses, wheatgrass, barley grass, oat, rye grass. There's a lot of different individuals, particularly people with chronic inflammation and autoimmune conditions that struggle with cereal grasses because they contain a compound, a lectin, called wheat germ agglutin, which is highly inflammatory and can be very gut irritating. And so organic super greens by Paleo Valley is the only greens powder that's super rich in chlorophyll, but doesn't contain the WGA. So guys, you can check it out and save 15% off any of the Paleo Valley products, including their organic super greens. Just go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers. That's paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to save 15% off. And what I do with the greens powder is I just take a scoop in water a day, every day. I usually have it after my lunch with a little bit of magnesium powder. And it is amazing. Tastes great and gives me great energy, mental clarity, supports detoxification, good blood flow and oxygenation to really help me get everything I need from my day. So guys, check it out again, paleovalley.com forward slash jockers, and that will save you 15% off. Welcome back to the podcast. Really excited about today's topic. We've got a repeat guest, Dr. Michael Ruscio from drruscio.com. He's got a great book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You, which is one of the best books when it comes to gut health. He's got Dr. Ruscio Radio and the Future of Functional Medicine Practitioner newsletter. If you are a practitioner out there and you really want to understand functional medicine better, root cause, gut issues, fantastic newsletter to sign up for. And he's got functional medicine formulations for phenomenal supplements, particularly gut-related supplements. And today we're going to talk about probiotics and how they heal leaky gut and reduce inflammation. And Dr. Ruscio is really an expert when it comes to gut health. And so we're going to talk about a lot of the common misconceptions when it comes to probiotics. Things like, do they need to be refrigerated? Do they need to be alive? What are the different types and categories of probiotics? Are all probiotics the same? And he's going to talk about probiotic triple therapy and his experience with that. And so that's a a key term that you're going to understand. And, you know, for a while, probiotics were just kind of like a shotgun thing where it's like, okay, just throw a probiotic, just get the most expensive one on the market or, or the cheapest one or whatever's refrigerated or, you know, whatever's most marketed and throw it at that individual and see if it works. And, Dr. Ruscio has a a really great strategy for how to use probiotics most effectively to get the best digestive health and anti-inflammatory results. I think you guys are going to love this. Uh, You're going to love this podcast. And of course, you can can follow Dr. Ruscio at drruscio.com. And guys, if you've not left us a five-star review now on your 
podcast player, please do. Uh, just go to Apple iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast, scroll to the bottom, leave us a review that helps us reach more people and impact more lives with this message. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for being a part of our community here. And let's go into the show. Well, Dr. Ruscio, always great to to connect with you. I know you're one of the leaders when it comes to digestive health. Somebody I really look up to. I love all your, all the great content you put out. Of course, your great book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And excited to talk to you about today's topic with probiotics because there's so many misconceptions out there with probiotics. But I will say from a personal experience, it is one of the first supplements that I took when I was having irritable bowel that really I noticed a big difference and made me a believer that supplements can really impact my health. And I took this, you know, as a personal trainer when I was 22 years old, really didn't know a whole lot about uh, functional medicine, really didn't know anything about functional medicine um, back then. But I knew when I was taking that, wow, this is making a difference. And, you know, I started understanding, started really looking into gut health and how, how digestive health can play a role when it comes to our overall health at that point. And so I know you have a lot of experience with probiotics and really doing research as well with your clinic. So I'm excited to talk to you about this topic. Yeah, same here. You know, it sounds like we had similar experiences where in college, the wheels kind of fell off and my wheels also fell off gastrointestinally speaking. And that's where I had this whole life path diversion toward, boy, I feel really terrible. And it turns out my gut is at the root of it all. Um, and it was uh, unpleasant process to go through firsthand, but it was a real gift in the sense that it taught me a lot of what this looks like and how we can sort of unravel some of these issues from the gut outwards. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's start with probiotics, how they work, right? What is the actual mechanism of how they're working in our body? Sure. Yeah. And I think this is one of the most underappreciated aspects of, of probiotics. You know, th there's multiple mechanisms, but one of the most underappreciated is that probiotics are actually fairly potent antimicrobials. So if people are concerned about, let's say, candida or some other type of fungus or SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or just some unknown thing that they feel microbially is out of balance, probiotics both actively secrete antimicrobial peptides, but they also take up residence in the gut. And through this process known as competitive competition or exclusion, they discourage these critters that are trying to kind of slide through the gut and, and get their niche established, they, you know, all the houses are bought essentially, right? There's no open lots. So that's one, I think that's really important to mention because just as one aside, not to go too far afield here, but just yesterday in the clinic, there was someone who needed ongoing antimicrobials to feel normal. He was switching back and forth one month, one herbal antimicrobial, then he'd rotate to another and he was working with a really good clinic in functional medicine. But what was unfortunate about this was he was in this pattern for a couple of years. It was somewhat helpful, but he had noticed if I stopped taking the antimicrobials, my symptoms come back. So he fell into this pattern of one formula for a month, switch to a different formula, and that seems to keep me maybe 60, 70%. And literally in four to six weeks, we got him you know, off of the antimicrobials, put him on probiotics, and his lingering fatigue, insomnia, and some gastrointestinal sort of sensitivity to foods was completely gone. So off antimicrobials for four to six weeks, no regression, and he actually had better symptomatic improvement. And this sort of ties in with one of the other mechanisms. So not only was he getting some of that antimicrobial effect that the antimicrobials were, were imparting, but it can also reduce leaky gut help to encourage eubiosis, meaning balance in the microbiota. And one of the other really important facets is that probiotics help to attune the immune system. Even dead probiotics have this ability to trigger certain receptors. I, I believe you've talked about pattern recognition receptors and toll-like receptors in the past. And these receptors need to be triggered in the gut to keep the immune system calibrated. This is why I'm sure your audience is also familiar with the fact that people who live and especially grow up in overly hygienic living environments develop more immune-mediated disorders because they don't have the stimulation of these receptors. So that's another one of the benefits that probiotics impart. Antimicrobial, they modulate the immune system, they balance the microbiota, and they reduce a lot of leaky gut. Uh, just to name a few, but those are probably the top mechanisms. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. A lot of people that are growing up in very sterile environments have a higher propensity towards allergies, asthma, a lot of these types of things. And they call it the hygiene hypothesis where uh, people are growing up on farms or less sterile environments. They're being exposed to a lot more dirt and dander. And with the dirt and dander, you're going to have microbes. And so that's kind of conditioning uh, their immune system. And so their immune system is in a sense, um, it's it's got greater resilience. Um, exactly. Whereas people that are in the sterile environment, less resiliency. And so it's responding, it's uh, overreacting, right? And less balanced. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's this recurring concept in biology, which is many biological systems require hormetic stress. They require stress to function properly. Think about your bones. Without any stress on your bones, I mean, you could say, oh my goodness, stress in the bone, you could break it. Well, okay, kind of. It's kind of true if the stress was inordinate, right? But without this background stress on the bone and the background exposure to the immune system, those systems don't function optimally. Now, you had mentioned how probiotics don't necessarily need to be alive to have an impact on the immune system. And so in the probiotic world, there's a lot of marketing that says, you know, our probiotics are alive, right? Like they're alive when they get into your body. We refrigerate them. We keep them at this, you know, really, really tight, um, you know, temperature control. Temperature make sure that they're alive when they get there. How important is that? Well, I usually think this is more important than it was. Uh, and over time, I think if you're working with a good clinician or, or following a good sort of educator, you will see simplification over time. Right? There's this old saying. Uh, I, I first heard from Paul Sheck, he who is the best can do the most with the least. So if we're getting better over time, things should become more simplified. So this applies to probiotics. Now, I used to be very fastidious and we'd make sure that the formulas that were you know, purportedly heat sensitive were on ice packs when they shipped and, and all that. And then there was a, uh, a couple of studies published back to 2016, 17-ish, when I was writing Healthy Gut, Healthy You, that suggested, hmm, you know, a couple of studies found that heat-killed probiotics were similar in effectiveness to live probiotics. So they took live probiotics, they warmed them up to ensure that the bacteria were dead, they gave them to people, they compared that to a normal intact probiotic, and they found equivalent results. But that was early data. You know, I'm sure we're on the same page. A couple of studies you pay attention to, but you don't make massive shifts based upon a couple of studies. You kind of wait and see. So enter a meta-analysis from just last year, Zorazella. They went and previewed all of the studies that have looked at heat killed versus viable or alive. And they found roughly 90% of the time, the effects were equivalent. So how I interpret that is, hmm, we thought that you needed the bacteria to be alive, and that was a theory, right? But with time and with additional science, some theories get amended. And so in this case, it appears that you don't have to worry about the probiotic being alive. Therefore, let's say, you know, practically, if you order a probiotic, it comes with a freezer pack. The freezer pack is sort of melted in room temperature. It's okay. It's not going to make a difference on the viability. And you're seeing um, a lot more companies sort of move away. In fact, we used to ship with ice for our probiotics. And now we're no longer doing that. There's something you can do in tandem, which is use moisture-resistant packaging to also aid. But who knows? Maybe that also doesn't really matter. Maybe that's going to follow the same trajectory as the heat killed, and we'll find that the moisture, uh, you know, reducing packaging doesn't matter. But uh, in any case, yeah, it doesn't seem to matter. And you're seeing a lot of companies move away from that. But you make a good point also, which is a lot of these points are are used as marketing. And a lot of supplement companies are looking for a one-up in terms of, well, we're better than them because of this. And I feel bad for the consumer because of that. It leads the consumers to feel like, oh my goodness, there's a, a gazillion choices. Do I use the enteric coated one that opens up in the colon? Do I use the one that's supposed to be on ice? You know, how do I parse this? And, you know, we'll develop this concept more, but the summary is probiotic utilization is much simpler than most people, than most companies are making it out to be. Yeah, for sure. And, it, and based on those results where the dead probiotics had similar results as the live probiotics, it makes me wonder if the third mechanism, you mentioned the three mechanisms, the antimicrobial factors, the recolonization and kind of the balancing in the gut, and then the priming of the immune system. Those are the three reasons or the three mechanisms why probiotics have an impact on gut health and overall health. 
when you take a dead probiotic, it's not releasing antimicrobial peptides and antimicrobial agents. At least you would you would think it's not. Presumably, yeah, yeah. right. And it's it's not recolonizing the gut. So you know those two mechanisms most likely are not not playing a role. So the third role, the priming of the immune system, seems to be based on that research. My assumption would be that perhaps could be the most powerful player when it comes to the probiotics. Yeah, I mean that that was exactly my thinking also. Which and, and it makes sense, right? If we think about where we are societally, one of the things we're probably most efficient in is that development of the immune system. So yeah, I'm with you. That's that's my speculation also. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, when it comes to probiotics, there's a lot of different types of species out there, uh, a lot of different types of categories of probiotics. And I know in your book, Healthy Gut Healthy, you do a good job of kind of breaking this down. You've done this in your work, breaking down the different categories. Most people just take whatever probiotics is most well marketed without really considering the different species, the different types. And so how can we kind of simplify that for, for, for lay people out there? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, simplify is a good word. And, and again, over time, I went from being more fastidious, you know, this person needs that probiotic, the other person with these other symptoms should use this one. Uh, and as you saw more and more research come in, you would say, huh, you know, five years ago, this one formula was the first formula to document results for constipation. So everyone uses that formula for constipation. Six months later, a different formula assists constipation. And two months later, a different formula. And you go out now five years or so, and there's meta-analyses of roughly 10 clinical trials, oftentimes with different formulas, all demonstrating benefit for constipation. So uh, because of that, our perspective on probiotics has become more and more sort of macro. You know, Rather than getting down into the weeds, this one formula, you sit atop the literature, get a purview, and, and you realize that these formulas can be helpful for various conditions. So it's not so much so formula dependent, but how do we select, I guess, the the, the broadest utilization of probiotics? It's kind of similar to a fecal microbiota transplant, right? They're, they're finding that this, this can be helpful, not something I'd recommend, but just as a principle, when you take stool from a healthy donor and then administer it to a uh, sick part, uh, you know, uh, individual, that's a super probiotic, you could argue, right? You have probably a, a thousand some odd different species. So the way I've thought through this is since different probiotics seem to be helpful for the same condition, we can look at, well, how do we break down the probiotics? There's your traditional, the oldest type, which is lactobacillus of various species and bifidobacterium of various species. You have your really old formula, VSL-3, that was kind of the blockbuster from a decade ago. Um, and now there's many, many formulas. And the commonality is these are lactic acid forming bacteria, various species of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. You look on the label, it'll be very clear. And that would be different from something like Florastor or a healthy fungus. So this is the second type. It's actually not even bacteria, it's fungus. And usually Saccharomyces boulardii, sometimes Saccharomyces cerevisiae. But in either case, this would be the second type of probiotic. And then third to that would be these spore-forming or soil-based probiotics known as bacillus. Um, you'll see bacillus subtilis, bacillus lichenformis, bacillus coagulans, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three, maybe four. Uh, so these have all been used across similar conditions and demonstrated benefit. So the approach that we've been taking is, well, let's give people ideally all three. So picture three different bottles. This functions sort of as a super probiotic, if you will. And the same concept is routinely applied in conventional medicine toward treatment of, let's say, SIBO, two antibiotics are often used, H. pylori, two to three antibiotics are often used. So this sort of dual therapy is fairly commonplace. And we're just doing that now with, with probiotics. We haven't yet demonstrated that this is more effective than one formula. It's one thing that we're hoping to do in the near future. Um, but that's the approach that we've been taking. And, and certainly, I think the logic supports it, meaning you know, if we see one formula is helpful, might it be better to use two or even three? And that, might that prevent the need for someone to use an antibiotic, let's say, because they've got a stubborn case of fungus or SIBO? Uh, and again, we haven't demonstrated this clinic, uh, or, um, uh, in published research yet, but clinically, that seems to be the signal that we're getting. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. And it, it would seem to me that, in a sense, the more different types of species, the more the immune system has got to adapt. 
And so somebody perhaps with less resilience, maybe that's really struggling with a lot of issues. Um, it might overwhelm their system. We don't know. Right. Whereas somebody that's, you know, generally healthier or whatnot, that might be exactly what they need is kind of a stronger push there. Sure. And this is one of the reasons why we, we both have formulas where you have the three bottles in one and we have them separately. For people who have a, a history of being sensitive or reactive, we'll have them start one probiotic at a time, give themselves three days to a week maybe, assess tolerance. If it's neutral to beneficial, continue with it. If there are any issues that are persisting beyond a week, that probably means it's not a good fit, or at least right now it's not a good fit to your, to your point about the immune system. It might, might be too much right now. Uh, so aim for all three and stay on whatever of those three you tolerate. And then usually what happens is over time, you see symptomatic improvement, including less reactivity, and then the other formulas can be brought in and then even more improvement can be garnered. Yeah, I think that's really important to understand as well, because there's a lot of people out there, particularly that would be listening to you know a conversation like this, you, you would tend to have more people that may have had an experience like this where they took a probiotic, they didn't feel good with it. And then somebody told them, well, you, you, for your condition, probiotics aren't actually good. Yeah, it's such a such a huge misnomer. I mean, coming back to that that case study I was mentioning before, this poor gentleman could have felt a lot better if there was just some diligence in the application of probiotics first. And, you know, we don't want to be dogmatic, but this is such a well studied, safe, and effective across multiple symptoms and conditions that we want to give this maybe a couple months to really dial this in, and then move on to other therapeutics. You know, maybe a parallel analogy would be. Someone wants to get really meticulous, let's say, with uh, supplements for their triglycerides and blood sugar, but they're eating McDonald's. <laughs> You've got to start with the foundational layer of diet. I would say after diet and lifestyle would be probiotics as it pertains to gut health. And then you can consider other things like antimicrobial therapy, antibiotic, you know, what have you. Yeah, that, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of questions people have with probiotics. Do they take them with food, without food? Are there benefits to, you know, with food, without food? What's kind of the best way to go about uh, starting probiotics? Yeah, you know, it was a very, very poignant timing that we scheduled this because we are just finishing a fairly comprehensive review on exactly this topic of how to best take probiotics. And in addition to the Zorzella heat killed meta-analysis that came up, there was a study that looked at with food versus without. And the way the researchers performed this study was they recommended people take the probiotics either with food or 30 minutes away from food. And they didn't find any difference regarding effectiveness between groups. And this reinforces something that I had assumed and the recommendations I've been making for a few years now, which is it probably doesn't matter. So do what's easiest for you. Coming back to simplicity, this whole you know bedrock concept of simplicity, the best dose is the one you will be the most consistent with. And then, you know, there's all these theories and this is where theory gets us into trouble. Well, you know, you, you don't want the acid of your stomach to kill it, or you want to make sure it gets into the colon. So do it on an empty stomach. And those theories are all fine and good, but unless we have good evidence to support those theories, all we're doing is making individuals' lives much more difficult. Because, And I'm sure you've seen this. They'll come in with a dosing table of 11 different dosing times per day. This one first thing in the morning, this one you know, 30 minutes in, this one with breakfast, this one mid-morning on an empty stomach, this one in the afternoon, this one you know, mid-afternoon in between uh, 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 lunch and dinner, You know, this one an hour before bed. And not only is that, I think, confining, I think psychologically, it makes people feel as though they are worse off than they actually are. Oh my goodness, my system must be so askew that I've got to go through all this you know, 11-point dosing and I think we really need to re-examine that whole model and just throw it out because I don't see it helping people. Yeah, sure. So based on your review of the research, at this point, you can take probiotics whenever it's really most convenient to you. Yes. And also full disclosure, there's not a lot of research on this, yeah. but at least the one study that attempted to examine it found the null, found it doesn't matter. So great. Let's keep moving in this simple direction, making people's lives easy and allowing them to be consistent with their dosing. Yeah, for sure. And I always say, you know, check with yourself as well. Some people, when they take pills on an empty stomach, they get burping, you know, they get some reflux, you don't feel as good, take it with a meal. Yeah. And that's me sometimes also. Yeah. In fact, yeah. just this morning, I, I took 
a few of the cognitive supplements that I take. And I just, I noticed a little, a little bit of a catch last week. Yeah. I kind of did a lot of fasting. I just felt to your point of following your body. I had a lot of stress, had a lot going on and I just felt, okay, I'm going to wind down my gym. I'm going to do one meal per day. It felt really good. I'll do one sauna session per day. And then when I came back to my morning supplement protocol, to your point about checking with your body, I just felt a little bit of tension in my gut and my bowels were a little bit loose, not to be too uh, graphic. Uh, and I said, oh, okay, this is a good signal for me. I'm going to stop doing the morning supplements on an empty stomach and just wait until I have my first meal. Yeah, really good biofeedback right there. Just listening to the messages your body's giving you. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you guys about how important electrolytes are. We all need them, and that includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which play a key role in energy production. You see a lot of the fatigue and brain fog that people are experiencing is actually due to low electrolytes. And then when you sweat, or if you're practicing a low carb diet or, or intermittent fasting, your electrolyte needs actually increase. And if the electrolytes aren't replaced, it's common to experience headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. Now, a lot of people out there will go and they'll drink sports drinks, but the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar and it doesn't have a science-backed ratio of electrolytes. And that is why I wanted to introduce you to my friends over at Element. Element is a healthy alternative because it's a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of electrolytes with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for those following a keto, low carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar coloring, artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, just electrolytes and stevia, and it gets results. You will notice uh, it's refreshing and you'll notice it pick up in your energy and your mental clarity when you drink it. Now, as a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can get a free sample pack with any order on their site. Each sample pack contains a number of great flavors. I really like the citrus, the raspberry, the orange salt, and the watermelon are all fantastic. They also have an unflavored. So if you don't want any stevia, they have an unflavored as well. And so when you get the sample pack, you get to try all of them out. And so all you need to do is go to the website, drinklmnt.com forward slash DR Jockers. Again, that's drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers and when you order anything on their site you'll get a free sample pack to try out all the different flavors you guys are going to love it check it out again drink lmnt.com forward slash dr jockers check it out today now a lot of supplements a lot of probiotic supplement companies out there will talk about why their probiotics are good because they've got prebiotics in them and i guess you know without really understanding or looking at the research you for most people, it would make sense. Hey, if you've got probiotics, they're going to need to feed prebiotics in the supplement. That just makes sense. Now they're going to have some fuel so they can grow. And, you know, with the idea that they are recolonizing in the gut. Right. What does the research say about that? Yeah. And that's also something that I generally thought was true. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting about the literature here is you see that low FODMAP diets, especially for people who have gastrointestinal symptoms, are very beneficial. And so the low FODMAP diet, by definition, being low prebiotic, mm. it makes you start to think. And we recently reviewed the evidence on this. And for IBS, I was actually surprised to see, but recent meta-analyses, you know, summaries of clinical trials, found no benefit for IBS with prebiotics, which again, I thought was surprising because I thought there would be at least some benefit. Now, so that's for IBS and that's a good sort of hallmark condition, I think that encapsulates a lot of gut symptoms. A different meta-analysis did find that probiotics with prebiotics was helpful for inflammatory bowel disease. So I'd say, okay, IBS, maybe not, IBD, maybe. Now. Probably the best evidence for prebiotics is for metabolism, for lowering blood sugar and cholesterol. Uh, the effects aren't huge, although for blood sugar, they're, they're substantial. Um, however, the dosages used are high enough to lead to adverse events gastrointestinally in a notable subset of individuals. Hmm. So you know, the, the, the hypothesis that 
prebiotics make the probiotics work better, I don't think is correct. I think that was a, a good theory, but as I look at these data, you know, I, I kind of question how true that is. Should you or should you not use them conjunctively? I think it depends. You could try. I don't think it's going to um, make a big difference. Although uh, I know we're going to talk about zonulin, and I was also surprised to see when a meta-analysis looked at the impact of probiotics and symbiotics, meaning the combination of probiotics with prebiotics, on zonulin, they found that there was a favorable impact. But when they did a regression analysis, they found that the probiotics were were beneficial for reducing zonulin, but the probiotics with prebiotics, the symbiotics, did not have a favorable impact on zonulin. So collectively, I say, you know, it's hard to be black and white on this because there's some mixed data. I would lean away from the use of prebiotics. If you want to try them, just do an isolation. So start your probiotic alone first, give that maybe a month or two, get to a point where you feel you've leveled off. Oftentimes with a new therapeutic, there's going to be this gradual gain and then a leveling off point. So wait until you're at that leveling off point. You know, Don't rush because I'm sure people can relate to this. It's common that people will say, I'm not really sure. right? I started something else. I was traveling. So you're, you know, you're trying to figure out, does this therapy help me? You want to reduce variables as much as you reasonably can. So probiotics first. And then once you feel like you've leveled off, then in isolation, try a prebiotic. If you get a good signal, keep going. If you don't, stop with one caveat that the first week or so on prebiotics, there can be some increased gas and flatulence as the microbiome adjusts. So don't jump ship too quickly. Give it about a week and then reappraise. If it's beneficial, keep going. If it's not, I would stop. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense and really helps people kind of understand how to use it. So you start with probiotics first and then kind of after taking them for a month or two, your body's adapting them, then potentially try the prebiotics, add that in. And I know for different individuals, they're going to respond better to different types of prebiotics. I know for me, in general, I respond really well to eating certain foods that tend to have a lot of prebiotics in them. But then when I take like a, a resistant starch or like a supplement that, you know, is kind of marketed for gut health, it seems to give me just a lot of, a lot of gas and bloating. A lot of those same types of fibers are in things like avocados, which I, I do well with. Uh, however, I, you know, and this just happened the other day, somebody, uh, a company sent me a coffee creamer, you know, it had all this great ingredients in it, rhodiola, MCT oil powder, all this kind of stuff. And I do well with MCT oil powder, do well with rhodiola, but it had resistant dextrose in there, right? And it was kind of marketed as, hey, it's going to support your, you know, give you better energy. It's going to support your gut. And I I put a little bit of that in. I was like, oh, I'll try this. I put it actually in my in a smoothie. Mm. I just had terrible bloating afterwards. And so it was just kind of like this resistant starch, this resistant dextrose. So you kind of have to watch and see how your body responds to each thing. Um, and I was interested also, you had mentioned how with IBS, the prebiotics showed that there was an improvement, but with the IBD, irritable bowel disease, so you have IBS, which is kind of a, a, a clamorate of, of different symptoms, gas, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. IBD would be an actual disease like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, it showed there there was some improvement. What do you think the mechanism potentially, obviously that that needs to be sussed out with more research, but what do you think a potential mechanism would be that, you know, why IBS, somebody may not respond as well based on that research versus IBD? Well, I also wonder, you know, even further upstream, is this maybe an artifact of data limitation? And as more yeah. research comes in, we'll see that that's not actually the finding. Um I also wonder if perhaps because most IBD, not all, but there's definitely a, a skewing toward the majority, whether it be Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, occurs in the colon. And that's where I think you can make a case for the prebiotics being more important, whereas more IBS is occurring in the small intestine. And that's where I think feeding the bacteria can be more dicey and the immune system modulation is probably more important. That would be how I speculate. Um, but who knows, right? Speculation, you know, is yeah. uh, <laughs> always a, a coin toss. Like I could be right, I could be wrong. You know, we'll know in a couple of years, probably. I think that's really interesting, and I think that's an important consideration. Is a lot of these symptoms, a lot of symptoms, 
are related to people having challenges with their small intestine, right? Just the integrity of the gut lining there, the overall uh, bacterial levels, microbial levels, microbial load in the small intestine versus people that are having issues more large intestine based. And the people that are on that are having more of the small intestinal based issues tend to do better with that low FODMAP or in a sense, low fiber, low prebiotic diet. They tend to do a lot better with that versus the people, you know, with more large intestine, they actually tend to do better with higher fiber, right? Um, and that's why, you know, you'll have people that market, hey, you got to be on this really high fiber diet to overcome constipation, to reduce your risk of colon cancer, right? Meanwhile, you know, there's other people that are like, well, I, I can't handle the fiber because I get bloated, I get, you know, gas, I get more constipation when I'm dealing with that. Right. And it's, it's also uh, pretty individualized. Some people, ironically, will see better regularity constipation when they go on a low FODMAP diet. Um, not all, right? But but that happens in some cases. And in some cases where there is, let's say, constipation, antimicrobial therapy will help with their regularity. Um, and my data here is a little bit antiquated. We have to go through another review on this. But from about three years ago, when we did a pretty comprehensive review of dietary fiber and colon cancer, there wasn't, and when you isolate for the healthy user effects, people who don't smoke, drink, or smoke and drink less and have healthier diets overall, when you can, when you control for those confounders, there wasn't any clear signal that higher dietary fiber intake led to more uh, colorectal cancer prevention. Certainly, I wouldn't say that that's a license to go out there and eat a highly processed diet, but I, I think what it tells us is, like many things, once you take a step outside of or, or beyond the standard American diet, many different reference diets can be health promoting. Mediterranean, paleo, low carb, uh, vegetarian, right? I think they all can be helpful. Um, and to your point, why I think this matters is some people will force upon themselves a high fiber intake and notice that they feel poor when they do it and they keep going because they think they need to do that for their health. And it comes back to what you said before, which I strongly agree with, which is listen to your body, right? That's It's such an important sort of North Star for people to follow. Yeah. When it comes to fiber intake, I think it's kind of like a bell curve, right? Where there's people that do really, really well with little to no fiber. And these are people that may be on a carnivore diet and seem to be thriving on that diet. And there's people that do really, really well with very high fiber. They're the very strong plant-based advocates, and they seem to be doing really, really well on a high fiber. Most of us are kind of more towards the middle, right? We may skew a little bit left or a little bit right. And it's kind of trying to figure that out, um, you know, and customize it to, to what's going to work best for us. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, a lot of people ask, and this goes back to kind of that client, uh, that case study that you talked about. A lot of people ask, can you take a probiotic while you're taking an antibiotic or while you're doing some sort of antimicrobial treatment, right? There's a lot of people that are, for example, doing treatment to get rid of parasites or get rid of candida or something like that. Can you take a probiotic with that? Should you wait till after that's done? What's the right. best, uh, best approach yeah. when it comes to that? I love this question because this is also one where if you do this right, you can really enhance your effectiveness. And if you do it wrong, you may open yourself up to antibiotic-associated side effects. Uh, there's a lot of data here. Data are pretty clear, right? In some cases, like we mentioned earlier, there, there's kind of a paucity of data. So, you know, you, you see what the, the early studies show, you kind of wait and see, but you don't make any huge changes in light of that. This situation is different, fully different in the sense that there's a lot of research here. And fairly consistently you see that taking probiotics with antibiotics not only helps enhance clearance rate of said infection, but also reduces deleterious effects on the microbiota and reduces antibiotic-associated side effects. So it is, it is clearly something that one should do. Now, I should be careful to call out, there's this one Israeli study that found taking probiotics after antibiotics made the microbiota take longer to return to normal. And because it was sort of a, a counterculture finding, if you will, it got all this media press. You know, lesson one, don't take your healthcare advice from the news. <laughs> it's like, we should all be on the same page there, right? Because oftentimes they're incentivized, you know, what's, what's the newest, most novel, most sort of jarring thing? So 
I took that study very seriously because if that is true, it would lead us to amend the way that we recommend people use probiotics. But if it's not true, then we also want to not be misled by what might be an outlier. So there's a systematic review that's looked at this of 63 trials. And consistently, all of the trials find that probiotics have a what's known as eubiotic or restorative effect. So this one study was an outlier, this Israeli study. It was also a small study in only 21 individuals. Additionally, they didn't look at symptoms. So the preponderance of the data do find that probiotics enhance stability or normalcy in the microbiota after antibiotics. And they also find a reduction of antibiotic-associated side effects, including diarrhea, as well as enhanced clearance of whatever infection is being treated. And as one example of that, the average clearance rate for SIBO with probiotics is roughly between 50 and 60%. The average clearance rate with rifaximin, also between roughly 50 and 60%. This meta-analysis data for each. When combined, the clearance rate goes up to about 85%. So would definitely recommend using them together. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And especially if we go back to kind of earlier in our conversation, if the best benefit of the probiotics is the effect on the immune system, priming the immune system, then the antibiotics aren't going to affect that component. They really would just affect more of the colonization and perhaps the antimicrobial peptides being released from the from the uh, live bacteria if they kill the bacteria, but they're not going to affect the immune adaptation that takes place. Yeah, and a way you could think about it is if you're trying to clear you know this infection, you need both antimicrobial uh, stimulus or, or action, but you're local native immune system to help get you the rest of the way there. You know, one of the ways that antibiotics are thought about is they don't fully clear the infection. They just give your immune system a leg up to then be able to finish the job. Yeah, it makes sense. They're just reducing that microbial load a little bit, allowing your immune system, takes a little weight off its back and allows the immune system to now get over the the infection. Yeah, that's good. Now is there any testing that you're using? And we talked about zonulin. Zonulin is kind of this marker uh, that we'll look at that's associated with leaky gut or intestinal permeability when it's elevated, loosens the the tight junctions in the gut lining. And so it's a marker that's been used. What has been your experience looking at zonulin when it comes to uh, you know pre-post kind of probiotic trials? Sure. Well, in the office, I can't say that we found zonulin to be incredibly informative. And I think an important framework to introduce here is a good clinician will be half trying to uh, you know, prove what they're doing is working and then equally trying to disprove. In fact, the analogy I use with our office kind of as, a, as like a candidate is every once in a while, I got to go into jerk mode and just come in and flip over our table and say, does any of this crap even work? <laughs> right? But that's kind of the perspective that you have to have. Like, does this test work? Does this supplement work? Like, is this all BS? Because if you don't have that perspective, then you get pulled into nonsense with the people that you're trying to help. Uh, so with zonulin, there, you know, the stool zonulin, important to clarify, and, and we'll come back to stool versus blood in a second, but you know, sometimes you'd see someone who had a lot of symptoms and normal zonulin, and sometimes you see someone who had a lot of symptoms and abnormal zonulin. So, you know, the the, the trend didn't seem to be super high, and this is probably because most of the data for zonulin is using blood zonulin. Uh, so the stool zonulin is not as accurate. Blood zonulin does tend to correlate with various diseases and conditions. Uh, yes. But the agreement between, let's say, blood zonulin and then other markers of leaky gut is not great, specifically the lactulose mannitol absorption test. Now, that's also an imperfect test, but interesting that there's disagreement between those two. Also, the blood zonulin, people may have seen this a couple of years back. They actually changed the name from zonulin to zonulin family proteins because they determined that the zonulin blood test was not specific to zonulin itself, but zonulin plus some other similar proteins. So this probably also leads to some of the inconsistency that, that we're seeing. And then also in some of the interventional trials, you would see people had improvements in symptoms, but their zonulin didn't improve. 
Now, all that being said, there are data finding that probiotics can improve zonulin, right? But there's enough sort of inconsistency that I, I don't feel it tells you anything very constructive clinically. And this is a crucially important concept because one of the things that breaks my heart is when someone comes into our office and they've done two, three, four, five thousand dollars worth of lab work and they don't feel that they've gotten much better for it. In fact, I would argue because all those tests tell you, well, you got that wrong with you, this wrong with you, this other thing is low, this other thing is high. Now people who have a baseline tendency toward depression or anxiety become really triggered emotionally by that. And that's super counterproductive. Um, but the most important thing is, does the zonulin test tell you how to better treat the individual? And I would say, no, we, we know what therapies work, what therapies have adequate evidence. And almost none of these therapies have been used in a setting where, well, we give it if the zonulin's high, we don't give it if the zonulin is low. This is it's such a crucial concept. I think doctors in the alternative space and also patients, they have this thinking that you must have the tests in order to know how to treat. That's true for some things. If you have low testosterone, right? if you have high blood pressure, if you have frank diabetes, yes, yes, yes. When we get into this realm of functional GI care, most of these tests, the overwhelming majority are being used purely theoretically. So why that's, and sorry if I'm going on a tangent here, but why that's problematic is because if you're treating these theoretical markers, then you're trying to pin the tail on the wrong end of the donkey. We want to look at the person, their symptoms and study them, and then go to work on personalizing the therapies we know work for this sort of presentation to that individual. If we start treating theoretical markers that may or may not be accurate, we do the individual a huge disservice. And just as one example of this, I recently did two of the best stool tests in functional medicine. I took one bowel movement, put half in one, half in the other. Now, one test that I had C. diff and the other test that I had candida. They didn't agree on C. diff and candida. One said candida, one said C. diff, the other said no candida, the other, right? So imagine how much of an issue that would be for someone who's trying to get well. Well, just, you know, again, coin toss, how are we going to treat you, right? Are we going to treat you for C. diff or for candida? Depends on what test you did. Um, and I think something similar applies probably also for zonulin. So it, it's a marker that is helpful for research and trying to study things in a research setting to look for trends and correlations. But clinically, I just, um, I'm not convinced it's something that's going to help people. Do you have experience with blood zonulin levels? I know there's testing that can look at like DAO and- his Yeah, no, we, we had, a, it just felt like- yeah too much rigmarole to ask people yeah, yeah. to you know, also go to a lab for that. Um, so no, I haven't done blood zonulin. Yeah. Are there any biomarkers you're seeing on stool analysis or other testing that you're doing that seem to have consistent patterns with, with different symptoms? To be honest, not really. Um, yeah, probably the, the best test that's most well-studied and has a tight disagreement would be a SIBO breath test. Hmm. Um, but even that test, I can't say it's super constructive because you'll see just estimating here, 30 to 50% of people who have symptoms that might be SIBO, not have SIBO. So, you know, and that matches with some of the literature, maybe about 45% of, of SIBO seems to be underlied, or I'm sorry, 45% of IBS seems to be underlied by SIBO. So if we know that low FODMAP can help IBS symptoms or SIBO, it doesn't matter if you have the SIBO or not, as can probiotics, as can antimicrobials, as can elemental dieting, you know, it's hard for me to make a case that we must have the SIBO data because we have this whole list of therapies that will help you and your symptoms if you have SIBO or if you don't. So the utility of the testing for me is just, it's breaking down over time on a research setting or in a research setting, trying to look, you know, more broadly at populations of people with IBS and do people with IBS with or without SIBO have more brain fog, let's say, I think that's helpful, right? What happens all too often in our space is I think people are using tests in a clinical setting that are from research and there's not really any any good, to be candid, there's not really any clue. People don't have any clue to how really how to use them, but it, it's, it's so pervasive. Um, it's kind of like the emperor has no clothes argument that it's being done so commonplace that everyone thinks that we must have the tests in order to guide therapy. And again, sorry if I'm, I'm, I'm preaching a little bit here, but uh, it's just 
been so helpful for, for me and for us at the clinic. We're saving individuals so much money, and I think we're getting them better more quickly because we're just getting all these distracting biomarkers out of the way and saying, okay, here's you and your symptoms. Let's really study you. Let's also study your history, what you've done, what's helped, what hasn't helped. And then let's just have a list of therapies that we know are effective. They have the requisite evidence showing that they're effective. And now let's just personalize those. It's hard enough, right? It's hard enough to personalize therapies effectively to the person because there's all this background noise and people are, are you know generally up and down day over day. So that is hard enough in itself. But if you can really master that, I think that's the path. That's the key for most cases. Now, it's different if we're talking about colorectal cancer screening or ulcer screening, right? like conventional care, different. I'm not saying just blow off your gastroenterologist who's saying, boy, you're bloody diarrhea. We should probably have you come in and do some testing. But when you're in this functional model of trying to figure out where your symptoms are coming from, I think it's a false promise that all the advanced testing can tell you how to more expeditiously improve your health. I just want to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite supplements. It's called curcumin gold. You guys know I'm a huge advocate of turmeric, this Indian spice and the different polyphenols and compounds in there that help reduce inflammation. The most well-studied is curcumin. Curcumin has been shown to outperform your typical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Advil, and Tylenol in many different studies by reducing pain and inflammation without the harmful side effects. And what I love about the curcumin gold is that it contains turmeric curcumin extract. It contains vegan omega-3s made from algae, the long chain uh, omega-3 called DHA, which is so powerful for the brain, so powerful for heart health and reducing inflammation. It also has ginger oil. Those carefully selected ingredients support healthy joint function and address the root cause of inflammation within your body. Now, trust me when I say you won't find anything else on the market quite like this. In fact, my friends over at Purality Health have a patented formula that utilizes something called micelle liposomal technology, which delivers nutrients directly into your bloodstream. And it's proven to be 800% more efficient than traditional supplements. Even better, it's backed by a 180-day money-back guarantee. And today, we have a 30% off coupon just for you. Visit PurityHealth.com. Use the coupon DRJ to access 30% off today. For sure. Now, are you seeing uh, probiotics being effective for things like H. pylori? Yes. We recently found a meta-analysis that found probiotics alone could lead to a 30% clearance rate of H. pylori. So that's not super high, but you yeah. know, it's, it's something. And you, we, we would follow that same hierarchy that we outlined a moment ago. Start with probiotics, reevaluate. And then if you're not where you want to be, keep with the probiotics going, but add in some sort of antibiotic therapy or, or uh, antimicrobial therapy. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. And now you're having a lot of results, but triple therapy with probiotics. Can you explain that in more detail? Sure. Sure. So coming back to a moment ago when we were outlining sort of the lactic acid forming blend of bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, that's your formula one, um, VSL3 kind of being the, the older school version. Then you have your healthy fungus, Saccharomyces boulardii. Uh, Floristore is one people may have seen, you know, very uh, sort of conventional over-the-counter um, fungal probiotic. That's two. And then the third, you have various, uh, like Biospora would be one example of soil-based or spore-forming probiotics. These are typically your bacillus. So in a sensitive person, we'll send them home with three separate bottles and say, start these one at a time. So many people didn't need to do that. And with our concept of simplicity, we said, well, why don't we take two capsules out of one bottle, two capsules out of the other, two capsules out of the third, open them up, pour them into a single serving packet, and then just give people that. So that's a triple therapy probiotic. It's the same thing as the three different bottles. It just puts the dosing into a much easier single serving tear stick, you know, tear it open, drink with water or what have you. And yeah, it, it seems to work really well. Again, we haven't documented that scientifically yet. But just based upon the fact that we see benefit with these three different types in the research literature, and in theory, three might be better than one, just like the dual antibiotic therapy, we wanted to give people a more convenient dosing method, and that's the uh, the packets. 
Yeah, and, and probiotics, they, they can be labeled based on CFUs, colony forming units. Do you have a specific dosage, like with your triple therapy, is there a specific dosage that seems to have more benefit than a you know, than other dosages, a lot of a lot of them are marketed based on the amount of CFUs. Yeah, and you know, this is something also from a recent review that's been uh, pretty interesting to think about. So, our triple therapy contains sixty-two billion CFU. As we were going through the literature on this, we found that for for the one formula, remember that the triple therapy is three together. So, for for <laughs> one formula at a time, you're seeing that that the sweet spot of dosages might be around 10 billion, 5 to 10 billion. Some studies have used more, but there doesn't seem to be any demonstration that the higher doses are better. Mm. So that actually, and this is just from um, earlier in the week, last week that we were sort of uncovering this. So it has me rethinking what the best dose is, but there's a little bit of background story I want to tell you on this also. Um, because myself and our two research analysts, when we looked at this and we said, oh boy, you know, looking at IBS, it looks like five to 10 billion is, is probably sufficient, probably the best, and we don't need to go higher. Uh, but we said, well, we should also look at things like IBD, depression and anxiety, atopic or immune disorders, and look at what is the ideal dose for those conditions also. Because what we're trying to get to is what is the best sort of all-purpose dose, coming yeah. back to simplicity. So if there was a big variance, let's say for depression, you need 100 billion, and then for IBS, you need 10 well, okay, maybe we'd want to make that delineation. But coming back to this concept that tends to be true, that 10 billion-ish, five to 10 billion, seems to be the case across multiple different domains of health. So that has me rethinking, you know, maybe we're going to reformulate our probiotic. I need to think on this more and consider, is, is there uh, anything else that we're missing? But as long as sort of the triple check of the logic and the research holds, we'll probably move the dose down a little bit from that 62 closer to something like 10. Yeah. And I'm curious, based on the species of probiotic too, if that impacts it. Like I know that when you look, when you go out and you try to find, for example, a spore forming probiotic, they're typically much lower dosages, one, two, maybe 5 billion CFU. And then same with Saccharom Saccharomyces boulardii. You know, that, that beneficial yeast, typically you're going to find it five, maybe 10 billion at most. And then when it comes to the food base, that, that category one, lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, a lot of times you can find them 100 billion, 200 billion, 50 billion. They seem to be a lot higher. I, I, I'm sure that there's a cost, uh, you know, uh, association with that, but uh, there may also be, a, and I was curious to know your thoughts. Is there a clinical correlation with that as well, that you need higher doses when it comes to the food-based versus lower doses of the others? Yeah. I mean, great question. And that's exactly what we've been contemplating, you know, to your first point, yay, this could make it less expensive. Yeah, <laughs> this right. is so important to bear this in mind because there's such a pull in, you know, this, this space of more complicated, more aggressive, more expensive, more is better, more, 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 more. And there's very little incentive for simple and practical. And I get that, but I think it comes from the perspective of, I'm not feeling well, right? I have anxiety, I have depression, I have insomnia, I'll do anything to get better. And then, you know, yeah. more has got to be better. And we hear this in the office, I'll do whatever testing, you know, whatever it takes, doc, whatever testing. It's like, well, okay, hang on. <laughs> it doesn't mean that more testing is going to be better. Uh, and I think a clinician is your responsibility to kind of pull someone back supportively and help direct them. Um, but yes, you, you do see the higher doses in the lactobif blends. And in our formula, that's where the majority comes from. I believe it's 50 billion of that 62 comes from the lactobif blend. And I believe it's around 3 uh, billion for the Saccharomyces and for the soil base, respectively, each. Uh, so it, yeah, it doesn't seem that we need to use those higher doses. And I think where this comes from is as different clinical trials are experimenting, they're trying a variability in the dose to see, you know, what of this is going to be the best. Because we should all keep in mind that we don't know until we test, right? So, you know, there, there's no, uh, you know, Bible of probiotic dosing where doctors go to and say, oh, this is all verified, right? Like, you know, from on high. So until we say, well, let's try 5 billion and let's do a trial with 20 billion, let's do a trial with 100 billion, uh, we don't really know. Uh, so in this case, it does seem that even for the food base or the the lactobus or the uh, lactic acid forming, that a lower dose of about ten, you know, five to ten will work. So probably our plan will be 
to bring the lactobif down to maybe five and then have three of the sack and three of the soil based. And that'll get us to, um, you know, that'll get us to about um, 10, 10 or 11. Uh, so again, you know, don't quote me on that. We're, yeah. we're midstream, but you know, in the spirit of being transparent and realizing that I and we don't know everything, I'm trying to just share our thought process and the fact that we're interrogating these ideas to see even if our current recommendations are, you know, up for amendment. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's, there's also an idea in certain functional medicine world, certain, certain, certain circles in functional medicine that you should rotate your probiotics as well. That you don't want to continually take kind of the same kind or the same brand um, that you want to rotate. And then there's also an idea that you want as many different species as possible, right? There's some probiotics that they've got 20 different species, 30 different species in them uh, versus, you know, one that might have one or three or four different species. Right, right. And coming back to your question from a moment ago, that ties in with species, uh, some studies have compared different species or even different strains to the same species. And there doesn't seem to be a need to be species or strain dependent. There's a couple data points that I think could contest that, but I think the the more general trend is starting to point in the direction that the species or strain specificity doesn't matter. And then to your question of, you know, the more species, is that better? Also, there's a trend there. I'd say 60 or 70-ish percent of the data lay in that direction. There's also some studies that would sort of counter that. So two areas where I think we don't have conclusive data, but they're equivalent enough, or there's a slight lean toward the simple direction where, you know, again, looking at the history of this, we tend, as we learn more, we tend to go more toward the simple direction. And, and what was uh, what was it that Einstein said? If you can't describe the problem simply, you don't understand it well enough. So, you know, sort of similar to this. Um, so jury's still out, but I, I don't think that the strain or species specificity matters and probably the more species, the better. But to your earlier point, there might be a, a law of diminishing returns or, or a point at which you know more species doesn't vector any additional benefit. Yeah. So we still just need more information on that. So really to let's let's now kind of summarize this all. Somebody has bloating, diarrhea, constipation, your your typical irritable bowel types of, of symptoms, not feeling well. Where do they start? And we'll start with with nutrition, right? Like as far as diet changes, and then where do probiotics come in as far as making lifestyle changes and kind of adding in? I know you really like to add in one change at a time, to kind of right. see what's going to really move the needle for them. Yeah. So what I recommend doing is after you've made your dietary and lifestyle changes, then go on to the probiotics. And, and those changes, dietary and lifestyle, don't have to take forever. That can be you know one, two months, but get a handle on those, get a sense for how you're doing. And then if you're sensitive, I would trial one of these formulas at a time. Give yourself about a week uh, on the one. If it's neutral beneficial, then add the second. Neutral beneficial, add the third. If any of them cause turbulence or reactions beyond a week, then stop that one. Remembering that for most people, they don't need to do that. So if you don't have a history of being really sensitive and reactive, just start all three at once or you know, we make the packets where it's all in one, right? The other thing here that came up in our recent review, which was also surprising to me, is some, or not, I shouldn't say some, many of the trials are finding that the best effect seems to be achieved at the second or third month of using the probiotics. So what you're looking for at the end of the first month is, am I improving? Yes or no. Not, was this a blockbuster hit? Oh my goodness, I won the lottery right? Just take all your symptoms. Say you have six symptoms. Are the majority of those improving and trending in the right direction? If so, keep going. And then you'll likely see a plateau of improvement by your second or your third month. It's really good. So 60 to 90 days. Yep. And, and also keep in mind that there's going to be some variability week to week or day to day. You want to be looking more macro, right? Because what happens sometimes is Someone had a bad few days and they, you know, they would have had that bad few days anyway. And they go, oh, it must be these new probiotics. I'm going to stop. So I understand having a bad few days is unpleasant. I've been there, right? But think like a scientist, step outside of the emotion. And as long as the, the reaction is not clearly severe, then give it some time. And you want to be doing 
you know, a three or a four week look back. Was the last month better than the month before that? Yes. Keep going. You know, don't get in the weeds of the day to day because that's when you can start to just, you know, drive yourself crazy. Yeah. So kind of summarize that with probiotics, obviously first off making nutrition changes. So get the processed foods out, follow more of kind of a paleo diet template, see how you're doing with that. If you're not doing a lot better, maybe consider a low FODMAP diet, try that out um, and see how your body's responding. Try to kind of figure out the best diet strategy and then start adding in the probiotics. Start with, unless you're very sensitive and have had bad experiences with probiotics, start with a triple therapy where you're doing all three categories, lacto, bifido, the Saccharomyces boulardii, as well as the soil base of the psyllis strains. So you're starting with the triple therapy. You want to give it really like a good month to kind of see how your body's responding to it. If you're noticing 10, 20, 30% improvement, great. Let's keep going and see kind of where you plateau at after the 60 to 90 days, right? If for some reason you don't feel good after about a week doing the triple therapy, that's when you would go and try to isolate like one of the probiotics. Is that correct? Correct. Correct. And usually, and usually if someone's having a reaction, it's fairly obvious, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was okay. And now all of a sudden I'm constipated or I'm having really loose bowels and that's not a fluke. It's persisted to day five, six and right. Yeah. So, um, just to make sure to put that out there, if you're having a negative reaction, you'll know it, you know, so don't, yeah. don't, uh, go crazy trying to analyze down to the like 2% degree of variance. Well, this has been really good and really helpful. And I like this approach because you know, it's, it's, you're taking one thing at a time and really helping people understand what's going to be the biggest, biggest needle mover for them and getting well with the lowest cost, right? We're talking about one supplement at a time. So you can see what's going to really move the needle for you for the lowest possible cost, no real detailed testing that, that needs to take place there. So it's something you can get started with right now. So Dr. Ruscio, really appreciate all your time and expertise here. Any last words, inspiration here for our audience? Yeah, I would say things are usually not as bad as people think that they are. Uh, and I include myself in this when I've had issues, you know, I'll go on online and typically what you read online makes things seem way worse than they actually are. There's, there's simple fundamental tools. And if you apply those effectively, you will improve. Uh, I know when you're in the throes of it, there can be a lot of emotion and maybe fear or worry. Take a breath, understand that the simple path is usually the best. Simple doesn't mean non-scientific. In fact, I would argue that the most scientific approach usually eventually leads you to that simpler path. So keep things simple, do things one step at a time and realize that you're not alone. And this probably won't be as, as hard or the situation is probably not as bad as you think. Perfect. Well, thanks so much again, Dr. Ruscio. Guys, you can check him out, drruscio.com and also check out his book, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. Thanks again for your time and everybody be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.